Okay. Okay. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, within God's Word. Ephesians, chapter 5, within God's Word this morning. Derek, would you help me, buddy? Amen. I'm going to let you take my Bible, if you would, please. A little too heavy here. Just don't steal it. I get more people stealing that. Are we ready yet up there? Okay. If you don't have a study guide, please make sure this morning that you have a study guide. This, as I said, is a more of a, uh, a sit-down with pastor, a sit-down with Dr. Phil. And I can legally say that, by the way. And uh, we're just going to have a chat here this morning and uh, talk about some heart issues as we begin a brand new series here at Lakeside. Uh, I love to tell the tale of the elderly couple that were sitting in a park bench watching the harvest moon rise in all of its golden color. She was feeling romantic. Uh, She was having all kinds of fuzzy feelings while he was monkeying around with his hearing aid, having problems with his hearing. And she leaned over romantically, affectionately. She said, my love for you is faithful and true. What? What'd you say? I I didn't hear you. My love for you is faithful and true. Speak up, dear. I can't hear what you're saying. My love for you is faithful and true. I'm tired of you too. Down through the years, now decades, I've had wives uh, come in for counseling and complain. uh, 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 My husband is no longer, no longer romantic, Pastor. And 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 even when I've had the husband sitting right there in the counseling uh, chamber, I've had husbands look me in the eye and say, "Well, I really don't know what to say to her, Pastor." Well, I always tell them, "Open up your Bible and turn to Song of Solomon." It is the most romantic. In fact, uh, it, it's got some chapters that are PG and other chapters, I mean, they get pretty passionate, pretty intense. Song of Solomon chapter 2 verse 10. Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away, for the winter is past. Spring is here. Call to me and let me hear your lovely voice and see your lovely face. And then out of the clear blue, all of a sudden, the husband breaks the romantic, romantic pace and warns the little foxes are running the, ruining the vineyards. Catch them. Catch the little foxes. For the grapes are all in blossom. What on earth is this all about? In the cultural context, It was the little foxes that would burrow down underground and gnaw at the taproot, gnaw at the sweet roots of the grapes, the vineyards, and ruin an entire vineyard. Oh, the destructive power of little things. Do you realize that more homes, more houses are destroyed every year by termites rather than fire? It's dangerous to ignore 
little things that can slowly and gradually eat away at the most precious, precious thing that we have outside of our salvation, our marriages. You know, I'm convinced big things like job loss or a health crisis can really bring a couple together. Whereas it's the little things that can gnaw and eat away at a precious marriage. And I believe, I'm convinced, there's no greater marriage manual in the world than Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5 exposes the little foxes. Ephesians chapter 5 reveals the heart of God's love for marriages, for husband and wife. Are we ready up there now with the video? Go ahead and run it. Amen. services, I want to lead you on a journey of loving the way that Jesus loves. The series and the title of this morning's message is Keeping 
the honey in the honeymoon. Father, speak to us this morning. Come, Holy Spirit. We invite you into this practical word. In the name of Jesus, amen. Marriage is little foxes. There's one common denominator. You can always find it. It's always there. Among all marital problems, it's at the heart of every divorce. At the root of every marital problem, every divorce, count on it, you're going to find selfishness. Selfishness. Good old-fashioned selfishness. Name the symptoms of every marital problem. Role conflict, lack of communication, unmet expectations, critical uh, nature, controlling spirit. You'll find selfishness at the root. At the root. And count on it a surefire way to put to death any loving marital relationship is to think this. It's their responsibility to make me happy. It's their responsibility to satisfy me. It's their responsibility to give me a fulfilled, happy life. Reminds me, and I've shared it with you once before, but I share it again. For this morning's message, what happens, what happens when you have two kids that get married and they each approach marriage with a taking mindset instead of a giving mindset. The taker, the one who takes, 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 in nature, I, I would uh, say that they're analogous to a tick. Anybody know what a tick is? What do we call a tick in nature? What form of life is a tick? It is a para, a parasite. A parasite, a tick, rides along on a dog, and that tick is bound up in an entire existence of what? Taking, taking, taking. A tick's a bloodsucker. You know any bloodsucking marriages? Blood-sucking spouses? What happens? What happens when the boy and the girl get married? What happens when both are ticks and there's no dog? We've got chaos. We've got a problem. Talk about unmet, unfulfilled expectations. The answer to the tick syndrome? The answer? Here it is. It's very in, hear me, it, it is very politically incorrect. Here it is. Submission. I almost fell off my stool. Submission. Who is supposed to submit to who in the Bible marriage? You know, this is the most educated congregation of the three services. The first two services both shouted out, The wife's supposed to submit to the husband. And it was done in a very angry way. <laughs> and I just came back and said, You don't know your Bible. Mark it down. God's word, God's word reveals not only one of the greatest keys to a happy marriage, but an antidote for the little fox of selfishness. 
which is mutual submission. Mutual submission. Ephesians 5.21. You got Bible on it, Pastor. I sure do. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Real love is when you identify the need of the other. When you fulfill and satisfy the need of the other. Real love is not self-centered. It is other-centered. And you do it for the Lord's glory. Paul said in Philippians 2, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as who? If you have the same mindset as Jesus, you are on a constant quest of intimacy with your spouse. You're on a hunt. Now I'm talking to some of you hunters out there. You guys brag about your deer, your antelope, your buffalo, your jackrabbits. I'm your prairie dog hunting. You're into hunting. When was the last time you went hunting for the needs of your mate? They change throughout time, by the way. Her needs are not the same they were 20, 30 years ago. She's matured. You have matured. Needs change. Interests change over time. Have you discovered, identified the needs of your spouse? And then, are you striving to fulfill them? That's having the mindset of Jesus. You see, in God's economy, we never get by getting. We always are blessed by giving. We always get by giving. You never get by getting. Now let's look at the little fox of role confusion. Role confusion. Again, don't check out on me. Those of you that are not married, this message is for those who want to get married, those who are married, those that don't want to be married. I'm going to cover all the bases this morning. Don't check out on me. Though God calls husbands and wives to practice mutual submission, they're to practice it differently. Because glory to God, He didn't create men and women the same. Can I hear an amen out there? The Bible says God created mankind in His own image, in the image of God. He created them male and female. He created them. Despite what the Hollywood crowd, despite uh, the role confusion, the feminist crowd, the homosexual crowd, the gender bender crowd would like to bring upon us today, God's Word reveals that women have not been called to look like men or act like men. God's Word reveals that He has called uh, uh, men not to look like women and not to act like women, not to be a Mr. Mom. The Bible reveals that God has made us differently. We're differently physically down to the very cells of our body. Do you know that they have just discovered that uh, babies' brains develop differently in the womb, that female brains develop differently from male baby boy brains, 
The right side of our brain is the caring side. The left side is the logic side. Are you aware that baby boy brains in the womb develop far more slower on the right side, the caring side, than girls' brains? That's right. Men are born brain damaged. There you got it. From Dr. Phil. Yeah. Real. (laughs) Excuse me. That got me even choked up. Real marital conflict occurs when a husband treats his wife like a man. And wives relate to their husbands as though that husband was another woman. You got it mixed up. We need to understand the difference. And viva la difference. It's amazing how God has made us differently. Discover the differences. Enjoy the differences. Address, fulfill the differences in the name of Jesus. That's vital for keeping the honey in your honeymoon. The little fox of disrespect. Ephesians 5.22, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. Would you circle that word submit? Key word. As you do to the Lord for the husbands, the head. Circle the word head. We want to explain that too. Of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit to their husbands in everything. The wife must respect her husband. Now let's clear up our understanding on two hot-button words. Submit and head. Submit, in the literal Greek, is a military word. It speaks of hierarchy. It speaks of authority. It speaks of office. It does not, it does not, it does not speak. Hear me. Submit does not speak whatsoever of superiority or inferiority. Head, the word head here does not speak of master-slave relationship, dictatorship, and a peon. Uh, The word head does not speak of me, Tarzan, you, Jane, relationship. Submit, it is speaking of understanding ranking, like understanding a general, a captain, a lieutenant. It's understanding a sphere of authority. It's understanding a sphere of responsibility. Headship literally comes from the Greek word, the source, the fountainhead of a river. Head, again, does not mean dictatorship. Head would be like the head of a river, provisionary, refreshment, direction, source of strength. It does not mean, again, superiority. In every way, your wife can be superior to you. Husband. My wife is to me. My wife, Becky, graduated with a higher GPA than I did. So she's got it covered mentally, emotionally. I've watched her have the rugrats all around her and multitask. I mean, when, when, when the kids were young, and now with the grandkids, she can do three, five things all at once. I have to have a quiet office and complete focus. Uh, physically, are uh, women uh, ahead of us, men, superior to us? How many of you men would like to have a baby? 
Never had one man down through the years raised his hand. Physically, emotionally, mentally, women can be superior to us. But God has placed man in a sphere of responsibility, authority, as head in the home. Let me put it another way. I've used this analogy over the years. Bill Gates is racing down M59. Bill Gates, richest or second richest man now? All depends. Is it uh, Amazon guy now? Uh, the richest? Okay. But Bill Gates, Bill Gates, racing down M59. Bill Gates, with all of his prestige, popularity, prosperity, racing down all of his stature, all of his uh, intellectual prowess, racing down M59. 24-year-old state trooper pulls him over. Who gives the ticket? In every cultural context, Bill Gates is superior to that state trooper. But our government has put the state trooper in a sphere of authority over Bill Gates. God, in his wisdom, has placed the man as leader within the home. It's a position of responsibility. It's a position of spiritual authority. It does not mean he is superior. But pastor, my husband isn't a Christian. I get this a lot. My husband isn't a Christian. Pastor, my husband's supposed to be here this morning, but he's not. Oh, he, he loves Jesus. Or maybe he is here this morning. He raises his hand. He lives for Jesus on Sunday, but he lives like the devil the rest of the week, Pastor. Do I have to respect him as the head of the home? 1 Peter chapter 3. Wives, fit in with your husband's plans. For then if they refuse to listen when you talk to them about the Lord, they will be won by your respectful, pure behavior. Your godly lives will speak to them better than any words. You show me a, a home where the man is not allowed to lead and be the head, and I'll show you an unhappy home, and I'll show you ultimately an unhappy wife. So a husband's greatest need is not food, it's not pleasure, but to be respected and honored as the leader of the home. Wives, Determined to be your husband's greatest cheerleader, his greatest encourager. Let him know, you're the best. You can do it. You can climb that mountain. You can conquer that battle. I believe in you. Oh, pastor, my husband doesn't deserve my compliments. He doesn't deserve it. Then give it to him on credit. You do everything else on credit. I agree. I mean, there's some husbands that act like jerks. I'll just tell you. They deserve a cold meal. They deserve the cold shoulder. They deserve the cold bed. But I want you to notice a powerful phrase within the Word of God. Ephesians 5.22 as to the Lord. When you reward Him, compliment Him, encourage Him, bless Him, when you respect Him, when you follow His leadership, you are ultimately doing it unto the Lord. Many times He does not deserve it. 
He doesn't deserve your devotion, your respect, your love. Jesus does. The Lord always does. The Lord is faithful and faithful to reward. Wives, your husbands need you to be their helpers. After each of God's creative acts, what did God say after he created one thing after another? We hear this phrase, it is good. And then all of a sudden we hear God say, it is not good. What did the Lord say, it is not good? For man to be alone. It is not good for man to be alone. And the husbands would say, I was a pretty weak namby-pamby. Amen. You need this marriage series. Now the feminist, the feminist crowd would say, Helper! Helper! The woman is helper! Those are fighting words. It shows ignorance. The original Hebrew, the word helper, means assisting to reach complete fulfillment. Man is really incomplete without woman. And the wives would say, okay. Dad, dad leaned over driving home from church, leaned over the back seat and, and said, Scotty, Scotty, what'd you learn in Sunday school this morning? And Scotty said, I, I, I learned how, how God made woman, how God made Eve. And dad was curious well, well, what did the teacher say? How did God make woman? How did God make Eve? Well, well, the teacher said, the Sunday school teacher said that God put Adam to sleep, took out his brains, and then made a woman. God didn't make woman out of Adam's head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected and loved by him. Let's look at the little fox of unloving, unspiritual leadership. You know, there's a book. I've always been interested in getting it on my bookshelf. There's a book that is titled, uh, What Men... Know about women. It consists of 263 pages. And every one of them, blank. <laughs> blank. That's right. Blank. Oh, there's no marriage manual like Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives just as Jesus loved the church. I mean, what kind of love is that? How far did Jesus go to love the church? He gave himself up for her, Paul says. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and he be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. 
Intimacy is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself. The wife must respect her husband. Here, God identifies a woman's greatest need. And God identifies a man's greatest need. If if a man's greatest fear is failure, a woman's greatest fear is what? Rejection. Yes. Wives need loving, other-centered husbands. Four times, four times we hear this in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives. Husbands, love your wives. Husbands, love your wives. Husbands, love your wives. It's as though God knows that us men are hard of hearing. And sometimes hard-hearted. But pastor, my wife... My wife, Pastor, the old gray Mary ain't what she used to be. She's not the same girl I married. She's got some gray hair. Yeah, who gave it to her? Who gave it to her? It still remains. Husband, love your wife. Not a shallow love. Not a superficial love. Not a namby-pamby, infantile, uh, uh, immature love. Love your wife as Jesus loves us. Wow. What a goal. What an example. Husbands, your wives don't need your acceptance. They need your adoration. Write that down. Does she know you love her? Do you demonstrate it? Well, she should know it. I, I, I gave her a vacuum cleaner at, at Christmas time. Ten more. Nothing replaces telling her, I love you. Sometimes it's opening the door for her, taking off her coat, pulling out her chair. Sometimes it's with cards. Sometimes it's the misty bathroom mirror. And you write, I love you on it for her to find. Sometimes it's just tenderly holding her close in the family room by the fireplace. If it leads to the bedroom, great. If not, great. It all says, I love you. I need you. You're the best thing that ever happened in my life. Husband, you're not only called to be a leader in your home, you're called to be a a lover as well. What do they say about a man who's bald up front? Huh? He's a thinker. And a man who's bald behind, he's a lover. And if he's bald in both places, he thinks he's a lover. (laughs) Husband, you can keep the honey in your honeymoon by doing loving things. I want to quickly give you ten things. Husbands, you can do. You can do. Now, some husbands are just going to settle for good enough. But I want to raise the bar. Husband, if you want to raise the bar, you're going to write this down. Ten things husbands can do to keep the honey in the honeymoon. Number one, pray together. Pray together. 
Number two, use affectionate terms. I call Becky most of the time honey. Honey, sweetheart, babe, darling. It's, 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 it's unreal. What comes out of your mouth will frame your heart. If you speak it, you'll feel it. I've watched that over and over. I've got a secretary in my office. She constantly refers to her husband as lover. I think that's great. It, it orients the mind. Number four, plan. Or number three, show her appropriate public affection. Number four, plan regular dates. We, we, we lead busy lives. Plan it. You plan everything else. Number five, praise her as the wife and the mom that she is. Uh, number six, do something fun together. At least once a week. If not, carve out five minutes every day. Number seven, do some of her chores around the house. I wish Becky was here. I wish Becky was here. Oh, she's directing our nursery right now. Your pastor with his broken foot in two places. I spent a whole day and took on the master bathroom. And I cleaned it from the ceiling to the floor. The grout, every piece of mold, every fixture. I fixed the plumbing. I took on that thing that whole day. You would have thought that I had brought home a zillion red roses. I'm going to clean more bathrooms. I've been getting more mileage out of that bathroom than anything I've done in a long, long time. Amen. Do some of her chores around the house. Uh, real stat, a real stat from data information, a real stat, even though most women work outside the home today, they are still doing 90% of the household chores. And I declare that's wrong. That's wrong. I counsel couples before they're married. If they're going to work outside the home, there needs to be some 50-50 uh, in that. We even write down uh, on what he's going to do and what she's going to do, and we covenant uh, together. Yeah, we call it division of labor within the marriage. Oh, yeah. Number eight, learn. Read a book on how to be a better husband. Nine, compliment her appearance, her abilities. Ten, at least seven. At least seven. At least seven times daily. Say, I love you. You guys know how to count your money. You know how to count everything else. You can at least count seven times and say, I love you. The greatest leadership move any husband can ever make is to be the spiritual leader of the family. The spiritual pace setter. Sir, your wife and children are looking for this. God's Word commands it. The demons of hell will do their best to prevent you from becoming the spiritual leader, the spiritual pace-setter of the family. But if you obey God in this, uh, He'll empower it. He will empower you to pray in the home with your family. He'll empower you to say it's time to go to church. Your wife should never have to say that. Dad should lead the family in coming to church. Dad should lead the family in praying at the altar. Dad should lead the family in reading the word of the Lord. So that when Dad speaks, he's speaking with the authority of the Lord.
The little foxes, the little foxes, husbands. When, when God measures a real man, He doesn't put the measuring tape around His head. God's not interested in how smart you are. He doesn't put the measuring tape around your biceps. He's not interested in how strong you are. He puts the measuring tape around your heart. He is interested in the kind of lover you are. Will you be a loving leader within your home? The little fox of settling for good enough. I recently read of a university professor that handed out the final exam of the year in his class. The big one, the big test. And he announced this professor to the class. He said, I am so proud of you students. You have worked so diligently this year. You're the best class I have ever had in my vocation. Now here is the offer I'm making to you. If you do not, if you do not want to take this final test, this final exam, and then you would like to have an automatic C on it, raise your hand and you can leave the classroom and I'll give you an automatic C. Students looked at one another and then one student raised his hand. One became 10. 10 became half the class and they left and got an automatic C on the final exam. Then the professor said, the rest of you, I am so very proud of you. You exhibit the best in excelling for excellence, the pursuit of the best. I'm handing out the final exam. I want you to keep it face down on your desk until I tell you to flip it over. You passed out all the tests face down. Students, you now may turn it over. When, he turned, when they turned it over, it had two sentences. Two sentences on it. Put it up on the screen. Congratulations. You just made an A. Congratulations. You just made an A. I want to talk to you couples here this morning. I don't care if you've been married two years or 200 years. Have you settled for a C marriage? Well, God has an A marriage for you. Too many spouses just settle for, for good enough. You know, Pastor, uh, my marriage is not what it should be, but, you know, at least we're still together. I guess it's good enough. I guess it's good enough. Countless couples, oh yeah, have settled for good enough marriages that have all the, the emotion, the intimacy, and the passion of a lump of spam. Honey, sir, ma'am, it's time you stop settling for just good enough and start reaching out for God's best in your home and marriage. If you keep saying, uh, well, you know, a C is good enough. But if you start saying, I'm going to believe, I'm going to receive God's word, I'm going to put God's word into practice, I'm going to put Ephesians 5, 25 into practice, husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church. 
Jesus went the distance. He, he, he gave his very best. He gave his all. Husbands and wives, we arise up and say, I'm going to go for God's A, uh, His grade of A in my life, my marriage, my home. With God's help, I'm going to start activating His Word, believing and receiving His Word in my thought life, in my word life, in my action life. But you know, and this is where I address everyone this morning, it's not just our marriages we cannot be all that God has called us to be. We cannot do all that God has called us to do by just settling for good enough. Good enough. I'm sick and tired of Christians that have settled for just good enough in their walk of faith and in their walk with God. Did you know that Genesis chapter 38 shares a a very powerful account of a woman delivering twins. A woman delivering boy twins. Go home and read Genesis 38. A midwife was working with her in the delivery and, and was the, as was the custom when there were twins. She was ready with the scarlet thread she was ready to tie the scarlet thread around the wrist of the firstborn because in that culture, identifying the firstborn was priority. Suddenly, one of the boys stretched out his arm out of the womb and the midwife immediately tied a scarlet thread around his wrist. But the Bible says in Genesis 38... That the one who stretched it out pulled it back. And suddenly the other brother broke through and became the firstborn. Did you hear that? Did you hear that? Likewise, inside of each of us, there's two persons. Did you know that? There's two people in every single one of us. There's one, there's one that is stretching out. Stretching out and not settling. There's one aspect of your person that says, I'm going to become everything that God has called me to be. I'm going to do all that God has called me to do. I'm going to receive my potential in Christ Jesus. I want to be all that God has destined me to be. Then there's another person in you that pulls back, that settles for second best. There's that other per- part of you that says, you know, I, I, I'm never going to achieve my dreams. And I might as well just put up with it. I'll never get out of debt. I'll never break my habits. I'll never have a better marriage. I'll never lose weight. I, I, I'll never uh, uh, learn to uh, achieve my destiny. One wants to stretch. The other wants to settle. One goes for the A. The other settles for the C. Going for God's best in your life and in your relationships means having the right faith attitude. We talk a lot here at Lakeside about attitude. But I'm not just talking about a positive attitude. I'm talking about a faith in God attitude. This is the attitude that Jesus had. Philippians 2.2 Your attitude should be like who? 
should be just like Jesus, according to Philippians 2.2. Don't make the mistake of settling for for good enough living. Too many Christians have settled for for thinking that uh, they can never be successful. They'll never meet the right person to marry. Uh, They can never be happy. They can never be holy. They can never be healthy. That's not your destiny. In God. I want to remind you, you are a child of the Most High God. You're a king's kid. The royal blood of heaven flows through your veins. You are special. You are a royal priesthood, a chosen generation. The Bible says, Psalms 84 declares, No good thing will God withhold from them that walk uprightly. He will not withhold from you the right person to marry, the right finances, the right health, the right favor, the right blessing. Now maybe God has blessed you with good things. I'm looking at so many of you. You are blessed. You have income. You have a roof over your head. You have food to eat, clothes on your back. You are comfortable. But remember, the good, the good can be deceptive. I want to remind you, hear me, both young and old, the good can be the enemy of the great. The good can be the enemy of the great. Remember Israel? Israel was ready to go into the promised land. Israel was at the threshold of the promised land. Israel, for 40 years, had been residing and living with their families in what? In tents in the wilderness. And Israel ate every day. What? What did Israel eat for breakfast? What did they eat for breakfast? What did they eat for lunch? What did they eat for supper? They had manna for breakfast, manna for lunch, manna for supper. Manna for breakfast, manna for lunch, manna for supper. Oh, that manna just got tasty day after day, week after week, year after year for 40 years, didn't it? And at the threshold of God's best, at the cusp of God's best for His people, We're talking about promised land living. We're talking about a land flowing with milk and honey, fruits, vegetables, meat, abundance, favor, God's greatest, God's magnificence, God's best. For my God is able to do that which is exceedingly and abundantly, more than we can imagine, ask or think. And right at the threshold of the promised land, what does Israel say? The wilderness is good enough. We're going to settle for the wilderness. We don't want to go back. We, we don't want to go into the promised land. There's giants there. There's battles that have to be won. And we're going to settle for wilderness living, tent living. And all along, God was saying in Deuteronomy, I'm going to give you houses that you didn't even build. Can you imagine? Can you? Some of you have built a house, and you know the pain of that. Some of you have bought houses, and you know the pain of that. Keeping up a house, and you know the pain of. Can you imagine being given the keys to a mansion? This is yours. Promised land, living God's best, God's greatest, God's magnificence. No, I think 
we're going to go back and live in the tent. We're going to settle for the good old tent life, the good old manna life. And God's got fruits, vegetables, the milk and honey, a promised land living. Sir, ma'am, young person, it's about time we take the limits off of our God and be determined in this. I'm not going to let good enough keep me from good enough. I'm going to let the good enough go the way of the dodo bird and become extinct. I want God's best in my life. I know I was created for greatness. I was created to excel. I was created to have A's and not C's. I was created to live a healthy life, a holy life, a happy life. I'm not settling. I'm stretching. I'm stretching. I'm believing for the right mate, the right business idea, the right career. I'm believing for God's best in my finances, for God's best in my health. If you start believing again, if you start dreaming again, if if, if you just get out of the boat, God will let you walk on water. He'll connect you to the right people. He'll open up doors that no man can shut. What God has spoken over your life with dreams and visions, He will fulfill. The good news is this. Just because you gave up on a dream doesn't mean that God gave up. Why don't you get in agreement with God and believe for the impossible? Stop settling for a C and go for the A that God, God dreamed for your life. When you were born again, God, the Holy Spirit, recreated you. When you were born again, God breathed His Holy Spirit within your person. You have the DNA of God within your person. You were never created for just the good enough. You were designed and destined for the favor, the blessings, the greatness that God has called you to, the destiny that God has called you to. He has called you to be the head and not the tail. That's God's word. Keep stretching. Keep growing. Keep believing. Keep loving. Keep dreaming. Be determined to become all that God has called you to be. You know, it's not just God's favor. It's not just God's blessings. It's not just God's greatness that we need to strive for. How about it in your love relationship with Him? I have never, never, I have never experienced in counseling marital problems or personal problems with people that are in a strong, passionate love relationship with Jesus. When you get the vertical relationship right, the horizontal just perfectly is joined together in complete fulfillment. The greatest answer to marital problems or personal problems Get back on line with Jesus. Fall in love with Jesus all over again. He's the lover of your soul. God's Word this morning in Ephesians 5 says, 
that Jesus gave himself up for us. He died for us. He went the distance. He gave his all. No reservations. The last words of Jesus are not found in the Gospels. The last words of Jesus are found in the book of Revelation. Let's read it together. Stand with me. Revelation chapter 2, verse 4. Jesus, Jesus speaks to the church. It's a good church. It's an active church. It's a church with a lot going on. It's a church that's preaching the gospel. But listen to what Jesus says to the church. Could this be his word to us? Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. It tells me that the Lord notices how desperately we're in love with him tells me that God notices the level of our love. It lets me know that God notices whether or not we've settled for the good or we're stretching out for the best in our love relationship with Him. How do you feel about someone that gave their all for you? D.L. Moody, a century ago, would share the story of the husband that moved out west during the gold strike. He told his family, I'll telegraph you. I'll let you know when I've struck gold, and I'll send for you. Well, he did. He struck gold, and he sent for his family. His wife and son got on board board a boat, a steamer, to make it all the way out west and make that huge oceanic journey. Halfway on that transatlantic journey, the boat caught on fire. The flames quickly consumed that ship. All hands, all hands went to the lifeboats. The lifeboats were filled to overflowing. As the last lifeboat was being launched, out of the smoke came a scream. It was the mother holding her son. Save us, save us, don't let us die. Save us. The sailors said, we have room for only one. Only one. She said, take my boy. The sailor took her boy. And as the boat drifted into the smoke, she shouted out, Son! Son! Always remember and tell your dad, I died in your place. How do you think that son remembered his mother? How do you think that boy felt about mom, the one who died in her place? This morning, 
How do you feel about Jesus? Have you settled for good enough? Or are you saying, Lord, restore the passion? Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. And Lord, as we close this service, we ask, O oh Lord, touch us, Holy Spirit. Lord, baptize us with a fresh baptism of love. Restore, Lord Jesus, our passion for you. Heal our homes. But first of all, heal our hearts. How many are here today and you say, Pastor, I'm not content with my love relationship with Jesus. And I want a fresh touch. <laughs> I want a fresh anointing, a fresh baptism of His love in and through my life for Jesus. How many this morning would say, Pastor, <laughs> I want to restore the passion. I've got my hand lifted up. How about you? Precious Jesus. Precious Jesus. Precious Jesus. I'm going to close this service this morning here at the altar. And this morning, if you'd like to press in for more, if you, you don't want to settle for just good enough, and you just want to end this service this morning by just giving Him your love, I want you to come right now. If you need to go, God bless you. Go with God. But come right now, this morning. Press into His presence. Tell Him, I love you. Yes. This is the end.